0: Welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Hello, today I would like to talk about the colors red, white, black, and gray. So red, any red, so pink is a shade, or it's a tint, tint of red. When, when, the, when you tint a color, that means it goes up in value. So we have red that ranges from maybe fire engine red to magenta. Maybe not going as far into the burgundy scope of red, where you're getting more violet in there. Yeah, all these reds, doesn't matter the chromatic intensity. So like often like pink can be rather low in chroma, as opposed to like a stop sign red. So the red can be dull or chromatic, can be light or dark, and how that pairs with any neutral color. So from black at the darkest, and white at the lightest, and then all the grays in between. It just has struck me over the years how frequent these combinations appear, and that to my sensibilities, aesthetically, they just always seem to work. So I thought... I would spend some time trying to figure out maybe what is at play here, go through a couple of ideas that may or may not have any relevance to this, and specifically the reason I'm thinking about it right now is I have noticed, and I don't know if this is the same in your area wherever you live, but I'm in Minnesota, travel around the Twin Cities 95 to 97% of the cars that I am seeing on the street are either white or black or gray. And if they are colorful, they are red. It's usually a pretty vibrant red, like a fire engine red or stop sign red. It can be a little bit duller than that, maybe sometimes a little deeper. And one of the interesting things is that the grays, the white and the black, are very neutral, and the grays' colors are also very consistently neutral. So it's not like a gray that tips a little bit towards green or a little bit towards yellow or a little bit towards blue. It's like a it's like a perfectly neutral gray, and a lot of them are in the mid-range of mid to dark. Actually, I'm looking at my apple computer desktop and if you've got one of those it's that color at, that they use for the base of their gray is very common although there are you know, there's a whole range and then if the the car is colorful or the truck or whatever it's red now occasionally i'll see a yellow car or a green car and a lot of the times i'll be sitting Like I go to the grocery store, I did podcast on going to the grocery store, and and this grocery store is pretty big, and it's got like a parking lot that's like an ocean, like a sea of cars. And I'm telling you, every time I pull in there, and if it's busy, I look around lately, and I can spot one or two blue cars way over there, and a yellow one kind of next to me. And then I'm looking at like three or four hundred other cars that are gray or red, and mostly gray. All right how long has this been going on? Because I hadn't noticed it until recently. And how is that even possible? This is kind of baffling to me. So like I said, I don't know, maybe you could write in the comments or something on iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you are in the world, is this phenomenon happening as well? I I doubt it. I I don't know. uh, That might be my next step is to find out if this is a regional phenomenon or or if it's just here or if it's just the United States or just North America the reason I was thinking about I think about this color combination of red and gray is years ago when I was in school when I was in art school it would have been the late uh, 1990s I want to say it was like 1997 or 98 I'm working in my studio and the teacher, it was the first week of class, and so for kind of like a, just a, an assignment that is like totally basic because, you know, as a teacher you don't know who the students are necessarily or what, where they're at in terms of what they know, and it was like an um, intermediate level painting class, the instruction was to go home, get a bowl, put some apples in that bowl, and make a painting of it. Just super simple. And so I had my apples and I had my bowl, and I had it sitting on a stool next to my painting stuff. And I'm painting this thing, and I had this. It was kind of a big painting. I think it was like four by four feet. It was square. I remember, it was square because the, because the, uh, the bowl was round and the apples were round, and it was one of the first times that I really uh, worked on a stra- uh, square substrate, and met the challenges, or I don't know if I met them, but I encountered the challenges of working on a square canvas substrate and, and that challenge being that the center of the thing very easily becomes a bullseye focal point and so especially since I had a bowl in there that was painted somewhat foreshortened, so it was more like an ellipse, but that even contributed to the bullseye effect even more. And then I had all these round apples, so I was, like, stuck in this conundrum of composition of trying to, like, figure out how uh, whatever was happening. And then the whole thing was red, and I kept glazing the whole... I painted the whole thing in monochromatic red. I remember I was laying all these, like, um, transparent layers of paint over other colors to make everything red. And finally, I just had this like crazy red painting. And I remember my, ger- my studio mate, my Jeremy, is across the room from me working on his own stuff. And at one point he said, why don't you paint the bowl gray? And I was like, what? And he said, yeah, just gray. Just paint the bowl like flat, like a solid color because we we're looking down into the bowl so you can imagine it was kind of this circular shape but then the apples were in there so the interior of the bowl was kind of a, that negative space was um very intricate from all these circles combining on each other and making these wedge shapes kind of like the, the head of mickey mouse <laughs> i don't know what am i talking about well there's another combination of red white and and black mickey mouse I think he has yellow on his little pants, too, but he's basically black and white, and he has red uh, shorts on, and I think he's got red, um, there's little yellow circles that kind of pick up the shape of his eye, and I read years ago about that that the shape of Mickey Mouse's head is like I don't know how they were framing it, almost like it's almost like a perfect design. I don't know, perfect isn't the word, but it's like a, a design of concentric circles that put, put next to each other, like the ears and then the, the main head form that create like this these three circles that are all together. The negative space between those circles become arrows that push your eye directionally around the form and then the entire interior of his face is made up of circles and ovals so that that negative space of, of these little pointing arrows from where the circles and ovals come together continuously pull the viewer around within the form as, and not encouraging the viewer to look away, it's like it's constantly self-referential And I think I was reading about that in the context of it being one of the most recognizable forms that this study was showing. And the most recognizable form to the people that they were quizzing was the Coca-Cola symbol. And Mickey Mouse's head was number two. I forget what number three was. But anyway, here again. All right, we're back. See, it's all back to the... And then so I got Jeremy telling me to paint the bowl... Uh, gray, this flat gray, and I did mix up a dark color, kind of like the color of the Apple um, uh, desktop stand, and I painted it in there and it looked sweet. And he was like, Yeah, you got to go to the Minneapolis Institute of Arts and look at this Philip Guston painting called Bronze. And it's this large abstraction that's maybe seven or eight feet square. I don't know if it's square, but, um, and it's just a big mess of like gray and red and white, and it's a really great abstraction. And there it is again, that combination. And now that I'm talking about this, I can't, I can't tell you how I can, why do I remember this kind of stuff? That was like in 98, maybe. So we're talking like 24 years ago. I just accept it. I don't know why I think about this, like, kind of a lot. Like, on a weekly basis, I think of this thing. Whereas, like, when I write my name, I'm always wondering, like, my middle name is Robert, and I'm always wondering, are there two Bs in Robert? Uh, I better check just to make sure. (laughs) Like, I don't even know how to spell my own name. And yet, I can remember this like it happened yesterday. So, okay, well I'm getting off track here, back to the cars. A lot of the times i think about these uh, color combinations kind of as they're associated with decades and specifically back to that uh, black white gray pink red going back to the interior design of the 50s and 60s and like those ceramic bathrooms with the pink tile and the black accent tiles or the checkered what is that gingham tablecloth Uh, that that is such a popular, and then there's like this buffalo check fabric uh, design that's like a darker red with a black and sometimes gray, but, you know, much darker, richer red tones about how these combinations have shown up through history. And two, I guess I kind of consider chrome as a version of gray, even though it's a lot more reflective and you couldn't just say, you know there's lots of colors in there too but a lot of the times this the chrome will be um, in there kind of functioning in the same way as a neutral okay so back to the cars so I'm on the freeway I'm surrounded by these cars and I'm looking at them and I'm asking myself what is one thing that all these cars have in common like color wise that I can see right now that is the brake lights are red and that is probably mandatory they have to be red the wheels wheels are usually black and chrome or gray I, it made me start thinking about what i've learned about this chromostereoptic effect and about how colors appear in a three-dimensional space and even if they're on a two-dimensional picture plane it's said that blues recede into the distance and reds will advance on the picture plane so that there is the perception that there is a an actual visual depth within the colors that doesn't relate to their texture in terms of visual depth but that that in order to assist in the creation of an illusionistic sense of space, if you're painting like representationally, or even abstractly if you want some forms to feel like they're coming forward. A strategy for doing that is to have forms shift towards towards blue and uh, the violet end of the spectrum uh, to recede into space and the red forms to come forward. And there's lots of different ways to establish depth within the picture plane but thinking about it in a purely color sense. Also, my wife and I, I think I've mentioned we garden a lot, and we have this big backyard that's sloped up on like kind of like an amphitheater of these three tiers going up so that when you're standing at the top of our yard, you're actually above the roof of our house. It's pretty dramatic, and it's curved like like an amphitheater. Our yard is like in the shape of a piece of pie. We have gardens all throughout when we moved in, it was all lawn. And in the last, um, well, since 2006, my motto has been towards zero grass. And so I think I've got it down to that. There's only about 20% of the yard is actual grass. Now it might even be smaller than that after the summer. And so we have all these annuals and perennials and all this stuff. It's super colorful. And so the red flowers that are planted at the top of the yard, so maybe a hundred feet from where I'm sitting, these flowers, these these deep red flowers in this field of green are literally floating. And a lot of the times I really, unless I knew from memory uh, of walking over and being next to that flower, I might have a hard time telling you where some of these flowers are spatially as far as like are they in the far background or the middle ground or even sometimes they appear like they're in the foreground, almost like they're like a bird flying. It's, it can be very startling, especially as the light goes down or if it's in shadow where those reds like really glow. Going back to this chromostereopsis, so chromo, Chroma, the Greek word for color, stere, stereo meaning stere, stereo vision, binocular two eyes, and then opsis I believe is just means optic or 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 something to see, and so that's the kind of the root of that word. So it's, it's basically stereo vision, and it has to do with color depth perception, because as the colors in the landscape are entering our eyes, and getting to the retina. They're traveling through the atmosphere, which has its own refractive index, and the refractive index is a number associated with how light travels through a medium. So a medium is is anything, they refer to it in optics, as anything that light travels through. So water, glass, the atmosphere, all that kind of stuff, anything that light can pass through is called a medium. So the light is traveling from this flower, this red flower, that's way far away from me. It passes through my lens first, which is a medium. It's a, it's a clear structure that has its own refractive index that's different than the atmosphere. So it changes speed when it goes through my lens of both eyes. And as it changes speed, it changes direction. And that's where it becomes a cone a vision that is now being focused a, a onto a single point. And then that cone passes into the fluid of the eye, which is like a gel, from what I understand, it's kind of like a gel-type fluid. It's not like water. And it's called the vitreous humor. And that has its own refractive index as well. So it changes speed again once it's go- once it hits the... Uh, vitreous humor. And so each light wavelength, let's just for simple simplicity's sake, say red, uh, green and blue, those are the primaries of light. Red is at one end of the spectrum, the visible spectrum, it has the longest wavelength and it travels at the slowest speed. It travels at the lowest frequency, meaning how many times it spins to the number of rotations that it makes is fewer than the green travels at like a medium speed and it's a medium wavelength, a medium frequency and the blue is traveling, it's the shortest wavelength and it has the highest frequency and violet is even higher than the blue so those light wavelengths are spinning like crazy compared to the red wavelengths and and like i've said in other podcasts you know that's why our stoplights are red the light uh, will travel the furthest you're more likely to see that light from a greater distance than if the, the stoplight was was green or blue so i'm in the garden and i'm uh, looking at this largely green field with these really insanely intense pops of red like all over the place but they're isolated. And so those light wavelengths are coming into my eye, and the lens of our eyes, it bunches up or it stretches in order to attempt to focus wavelengths in the same spot within the eye. And it's I don't think it's very good at doing it. Like, it's good. It's good enough, but it's not, like, perfect. So basically when it's confronted with these greens... Or these reds and especially like in these lower lights where the greens start tipping towards blue so now we're seeing blue that's even further away from uh, the red on the spectrum and so the differences between their their refractive indices of how that light is traveling because they're both traveling at different speeds <laughs> i explaining this i don't know so yeah the red is going at its own speed and the blue green is going at its own speed and the lens is trying to match them up so it stretches out in order to focus things from far away and it bunches up to focus on things that are closer in this process the muscles around our lenses are going crazy the, you know, trying to, like, expand and contract and expand and contract and just go nuts trying to, like, make these colors focus on the retina in each eye. And as this is happening, the wavelengths are not being focused in the same in the same spot. Some of them are focusing earlier, like the blue is traveling much faster, so it's focusing in front of the retina, I think. The red is traveling much lower, slower and I think it's focusing beyond the retina and then some other colors like the greens and stuff are focusing maybe more in approximation to the retina itself. I don't know I've been looking at trying to figure out where all these things focus exactly and I haven't been able to find that research yet but I'm but from what I've gleaned from these other papers I've been reading I think I've got it I'm in the ballpark and so you've got all these light wavelengths that are focusing in different spots In relationship to the retina where the actual cone cells are there trying to figure out what the heck's going on that's happening in both eyes your vision is like mine and I have binocular vision then that's happening in both eyeballs and those specific areas that the light is attempting to be focused is not the same in each eyeball and they refer to it as like creating a disparity between the images that each eye is sending to the brain, to the mind, via their own optic nerves. And those optic nerves, from what I understand, there's no mediating thing between the mind and the optic nerve. I think it's one of the only situations in the human body where stimuli just goes right from the eyeball and straight into the mind. Like there's no network of like touch. If I touch something with my my fingers you got the ulnar nerves that are coming up and there's a big plexus of nerves in the armpit area called the brachial plexus where it's all these nerves from the arm coming together and joining up I think with nerves from the thorax and then it's going into the into the vertebrae, into the spinal cord, and, like, up into the brain. So it's like going through several stops in the train station before that sensation of touching something actually registers in my mind. And whereas with vision, it's just like a straight shot right through. And so it puts the mind in a position to, tr- to do a lot of guessing at, like, what is actually happening? Like, where is there all this stuff in space? that's why these colors appear to float and then sometimes some cases really vibrate if the chromos, if you google chromostereopsis, you'll be led to a, a image search that'll have all these different color parents that will your eyes will bug out of your head trying to look at them for any length of time but my thought on this whole thing is like if that's true in the very extreme sense then And that's very noticeable, and it's very discomforting to look at for any length of time. Is that still happening, even on a micro-micro scale? Because it still takes a little extra work for my mind to figure out what's going on when I've got a red in the picture and any other color, especially if they're saturated or if they're tense colors. I was going to say it doesn't happen as much with neutrals. Which is true. Although if the, if it's the exact same value as the red, you'll get that same vibrating boundary. It'll be difficult to look at. But it's happening in my yard where the colors are not that intense. Those greens are are they're chromatic, but they're not like crazy greens like you'll see in these pictures online. They're like super intense. Those colors typically don't exist in nature. But it's still happening. So now, going back to the cars, and I'm sitting in this traffic jam and I'm looking around at all these brake lights and all these cars that are either white, black, gray, or red. And maybe, maybe, maybe there's like a canary yellow car in there somewhere, but probably not. And I'm wondering if, because that tail light is mandatory to be on the car, it shifted because of the chromostereoptic phenomenon. That it's shifted over the years, a, like a drifting towards making all cars neutral or red itself, so that it does, the red of the car doesn't compete with the red of the of the brake light. That doesn't seem possible. <laughs> But, but I don't know. How could every car manufacturer? I mean, it doesn't matter. It's not like I'm saying like all the Fords are this, and the Chevys got you know. And then there's a lot of colors, a lot of. I'm talking like it's every, it's every brand and model. But that just doesn't seem possible. I don't know. I I tried googling like what's going on, and I found some chat room stuff uh, where people were saying, well, it's because." dealers couldn't move. If they ordered unusually colored cars, they just didn't move. They didn't want to take a chance on ordering a bunch of blue cars and, and, um, or yellow cars and being stuck with them. And that the, the white ones and black ones would maintain their resale value. I found a lot of stuff like that, that was all very anecdotal and like blogs and stuff like that. The thing that's driving me on this whole thing is the red. So the, They're going to make millions of cars that are white and black and gray, like tens of millions of these things. And then the one color that they're going to choose is red. It used to be in the olden days, if you had a red car, I don't know if this is true or just an urban myth, that you'd have to pay higher insurance because they figured you'd be speeding a lot. (laughs) I remember that when I was a kid. But it would be counterintuitive then to start making all these cars red if everybody was worried about paying higher insurance. Yeah, why didn't they pick yellow or a blue or a green that, you know, resonated with large portions of the population. They'd be like, "Oh, I love that green." Like if it was chartreuse, I'd be like, "Oh, yeah, I want that chartreuse green car." But then I then that chartreuse with the red tailgate. I might be walking around that thing going, "I don't know about this. This doesn't Can I make the tailgate or the ta- I keep saying tailgate. Can I make the tail lights like more purple?" <laughs> to go with the chartreuse, because I don't know if I can handle this red. Well, and then going back to this color depth perception thing, this phenomenon, where the light wavelengths, and back to the painting, my bowl of apples, my big square painting that I couldn't figure out how to work, and thinking about, well, I'll just read something that I read in my notes. So the chromostereopsis and chromatic focal points Note for further research, I say. Could this mean that any chromatic, so colorful, any chromatic two-dimensional picture plane is perceived as three-dimensional or 3D to a degree that in binocular vision, different colors, wavelengths, reds, greens, blues, etc., focus on the retina in different times and places in each eye? thus forming a stereoscopic image in the viewer's mind. So yes, the question is, are all paintings actually three-dimensional? Because they may be flat in terms of like if you looked across them, but it could be that we, the way we perceive light wavelengths, even if they're on flat surfaces, is within the three-dimensional realm because those light wavelengths are focusing in different places and at different times and in different places in each eye so therefore there's no difference between painting, printmaking, uh, photography you know think of anything that you can think of that's flat computer printout, computer screen there's no difference between that and a sculpture or an architectural space that they're all the same functioning in terms of color perception. Well, that could be a good place to leave it. I'm right at the th- half-hour mark. Thank you for listening. We talked about, let me know about this car thing wherever you are, and you might be like, I think that's just a Minnesota thing, Ed. Like, <laughs> like we say pop for soda, you know, it's just a Minnesota thing. Let me know. Anyway, well, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested And follow Chromosphere, the Color Theory podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shipinski for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shipinski again for their production, consulting, and editing.